Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, have we got a treat for you this week on the Rise Together podcast. We have the former Surgeon General of these United States, Dr. Murthy, on the program. As America's doctor, Dr. Murthy was the 19th Surgeon General of this country and had as a responsibility the job of tackling our country's most urgent public health issues. He happens to have written a book that is so timely for the times we are currently living in, and we dive into it and this conversation around loneliness today. Loneliness. Man, in these upside-down times where quarantining has kept connection a thing that ends up being at a premium, Loneliness ultimately is a thing that we probably are all in some ways dealing with and working through. The good news is social connection is innate and a cure for loneliness. And in this episode and in his book, he talks about the ways that we can address the crisis of loneliness. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seatbelts. Get ready for an amazing conversation and episode of Rise Together. I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things, this is Rise Together. Are Hello you? there. I'm well. My name's Dave. Hey, Dave. I'm Vivek. It's good to meet you. Vivek, it's so nice to meet you, too. Dr. Murthy is what I will call you from here on out. You can but... call me Vivek. That's totally fine. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for jumping in. I really appreciate it. It's no problem at all. It's no problem at all. Where are you today, Dave? Uh, our family lives just outside of Austin, Texas, like a very small, out in the middle of nowhere kind of space. But man, as uh, places to quarantine go, it is the right kind of place to quarantine, so yeah. uh, it works out. Where are you at? So I'm actually in, in a place that's not too bad either as far as quarantining goes. I'm in Miami, Florida, and I normally Excellent. live in Washington, D.C., but um, but during my, I grew up here in Miami, Florida, and my parents and my sister uh, still live here. So my wife and our kids and I, we just came down about two months ago and have been here ever since. So Excellent. So... I have to start with uh, wondering if, and, and if this again is an inappropriate question, we'll just throw it out right away. Was Doogie Hauser maybe one of your favorite shows growing up? Are you familiar with this Doogie Hauser? Like I grew up with C. Everett Koop as my first Surgeon General of Memory. 
and I see this face come onto my screen and you, sir, are no C. Everett Koop. You are a young spring chicken. How in the world did you become the Surgeon General of the United States at like 12 and a half years old? What in the world? <laughs> well, I do remember Doogie Hauser. In fact, my sister and I enjoyed watching Doogie Hauser. And C. Everett Koop was my first Surgeon General of memory as well and um, really made an impression on me. But, you know, despite despite the impression he made, Dave, it was never it was never in my sort of sights or part of my plan to try to be Surgeon General. I admired the position, but never frankly thought I would ever work in government. So I was pursuing a path, uh, you know, in the private sector, I was practicing medicine. I was teaching at an academic hospital. I was gotten, getting really interested in technology. So I had started a technology company to improve communication, collaboration, clinical trials. I'd gotten involved in community health advocacy work. I was doing all of these things in the nonprofit world as well. And was quite content in a sense with, with pursuing life in that arena. Uh, but then out of the blue, one day on July 10th, 2013, which happens to be my birthday, in fact, I, I get this call and it was, it was in the morning. And I remember this in particular because I had just gotten off a red-eye flight and I was, had gone home and I was about to just throw myself in bed and just go to sleep. And I remember that I had dry cleaning that was sitting at the dry cleaners for days that I had forgotten to pick up. So I get myself together, go to the dry cleaners, and I've got my hands full of clothes when this phone rings. And it's a 202 number. And I don't recognize like which number it is. I know it's Washington, D.C., but beyond that, I don't know. And I was like, I'm not going to pick this up. So I just keep walking, and it keeps ringing. And finally, I'm like, you know what? Let me just pick this up. So I pick it up. And it was on that phone call that it happened to be uh, a representative from the White House reaching out, asking if I would be interested in being considered for the position of Surgeon General. And, you know, I, I was flabbergasted because I, I was not seeking out the, the position. And I called my now wife, Alice, uh, who is in California. And I said, Alice, I just got the strangest call. Like you'd never believe. And she said, you know, I'll never forget what she said. She said, was it the White House asking you to be Surgeon General? I was like, how did you know? <laughs> like, that's crazy. Like, why, why, how would you have known that? She's like, I don't know. I just had this intuition that that's what it was. So that's sort of how it happened. But I'll tell you that um, I think part of the reason uh, that President Obama had asked me to, to serve in that position and his team uh, had approached me was what they were looking to do, uh, which I give them a lot of credit for because it takes some courage to depart from the norm, is they wanted to modernize the role of Surgeon General. I think they had recognized that unlike in C. Everett Koop's time, uh, where you could communicate to the public by going on a couple of news channels and by getting quoted in a few newspapers, this was a different era. And that if we really wanted to do what the Surgeon General is supposed to do, which is to communicate with the public about critical public health issues, that we had to use different messages, we had to mobilize different messengers, and we had to use different channels. We had to be thoughtful and creative about how we did that use technology in that process as well. And so that was part of the reason I think that they had reached out. I had also at that point in my career been blessed with a lot of opportunities to both practice and, and see medicine close up, but also to work on community health and public health and to think about uh, how technology interfaced with, with medicine and public health. And so interestingly enough, like I did all of those things because I was interested in them, but advisors would always look at my resume from training and say, gosh, none of this really fits together. You're just all over the map. Uh, you got to have a theme in your life. And I was like, I don't really know. I just am doing things that I'm excited about. 
Um, but it was strangely enough in this job as Surgeon General that I felt like all those threads finally came together because I find myself using the skills I had built, you know, running a technology company where I became very good at user interface and design. And that became critical for some of the opioid campaigns that we were running and the public health efforts that I had built, you know, focused on HIV and built and training community health workers that ended up helping to execute the grassroots campaigns that we started to build around a variety of public health topics. So bit by bit, everything kind of came together in this particular role. It's so interesting. I'm like geeking out and this may be just a conversation for the two of us. And that's okay, <laughs> that's, honestly, that's okay. because I was asked uh, in my former life at the Walt Disney Company to assume the role of head of sales at 36, having never previously really had a practical sales role. I had approached my entire career as a bit of a renaissance person who had 10 jobs in 10 years and each of those individual jobs, same kind of way. The resume wouldn't have necessarily lent itself to any singular thing, but the mosaic of all of those things come together was part of what made me an interesting candidate in a totally unconventional way. So dang it, I'm into that. That is not why we're here. But listen, listener, if you've got a variety of life experiences or work experiences, there's a reason why you can be the most qualified candidate of anyone who's applying to something just by taking and weaving a bit of a story together around why those experiences position you perfectly for whatever your next thing might be. Maybe the White House will just out of the blue call you one day and ask you to do something. Who knows? But I will say, I think this is such an important point because, you know, I was actually 36 when I was received that call as well. But I think also, if you are in a position in management where you're choosing somebody to take on a responsibility or a role, I think it's, it's, it's really important to think beyond the conventional checkboxes that we normally think a role uh, should have to fill, you know, a certain you know, a traditional set of experiences or educational training. Because I, you know, I feel blessed and fortunate that somebody took a chance on me, even though I didn't have a traditional resume. They gave me an opportunity to perform uh, in a role that I felt was very important and, and I hope that I made a contribution. Um, but I think that that's a power that you can have as, as a manager as well, is if you're open-minded enough to look at the person, not just the resume and the experiences, and realize that some people just have a, they just have a spark, they've got the passion, they've got the ability to learn, they've got some something special that sometimes will strike you. And, and to give yourself permission sometimes to trust in that and to say, if I see something special in somebody, let me give them a chance because they might surprise me. Oh, I love it. And what's interesting for me, I came in knowing that asking a lot of questions was a prerequisite for me continuing to grow inside of a role where many of the people around me were more qualified for my position, had expertise that I would need years to actually build myself. But the question asking of people who had conventional experience actually at times was a provocateur of them in their experience having to think about and look differently at something that they had experienced for so many years in a certain way. And so part of what I love about your infusion into this space and the way that you step into this health role, health for me for a long, long time was defined as physical health, right? I didn't really consider the dimensional nature of health also including mental health or emotional health or spiritual health. And I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about how your definition that spans all of these things was normal inside of that role or how you took some of that kind of the breadth of how you might define health and brought it into a space to normalize a conversation around mental health or lean into the importance of emotional health, whatever it might be. 
Yeah, it's a great question, David. I'll tell you that early on when I was trained in medicine, I also learned about medicine largely in the context of physical health. And there were there was some emphasis on mental health, but you know, it was very it was almost overly clinical. It was about, okay, how do, what are the criteria for major depressive disorder? How do you define schizophrenia and recognize it in a patient? But what was missing was, I think, a deeper recognition that it's not just about diagnosable mental illness, but our, where we are on our emotional well-being scale has a profound impact on how we show up in life. It impacts our health, how we perform, how we are with family. And our health overall, I came to see as I practice medicine, is really a complex product of what's happening in our bodies, in our minds, what's happening at an emotional level in our hearts, and what's happening at a spiritual level with us as well. And these all interface with each other. And so, you know, our, and, and a simple way to think about it is that if you, if you put yourself, if you just sit in a chair, you're feeling relaxed, and you start to think about something that is anxiety provoking, you can increase your heart rate. You can actually do that. As a, the simplest, evidence that there's a connection between what happens in our mind and what happens in our physical body. But that plays out at so many different levels. And the more I realized that, Dave, the more I just came to realize that if all I'm doing as a doctor is tending to someone's physical health, well, that can be extraordinarily helpful. Somebody comes with an infection, you can treat them with an antibiotic. Somebody's injured, you can help heal them. That's all powerful. But I realized that there's so much more that we could do if we understood all these different dimensions of their health. And what that meant then is also accepting and acknowledging that we may not have the power to fix all those dimensions. We may have to build partnerships with families, uh, with their community organizations that could support them when they're not in the hospital. Um, you know, practicing medicine is a humbling experience because over time you start to realize how much of people's health is actually not in your hands. Uh, but what mm -hmm. you can do if you're, I think, and what I've seen thoughtful and, 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 and wise physicians do over the years, is with that humility, you can also start to reach out and recruit and engage people in a patient's life uh, to help them recognize that they have a powerful role in healing. Uh, because it is our relationships at the end of the day that are an extraordinarily powerful source of healing. And if we can cultivate those just as readily as we would physical fitness, if we can pay attention to our emotional fitness and prioritize that in our lives, then I think we can lead more wholesome, more fulfilled, and ultimately healthier lives. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. All right, this is an easy segue because you have just written a book. I want to talk a little bit about it. There is a, a book called Together. Wait a second, this is the Rise Together podcast. He's written a <laughs> book called Together. 
the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world. Did your writing of this book provoke the crisis that we find ourselves in? Answer this question, sir. <laughs> so I'm here to announce uh, today that I am not responsible for COVID-19. Thank you. I, I also Thank did you. not plan this book title in collaboration with Dave before this podcast. Yeah, the reason I wrote the book, and, and I'll tell you, you know, Dave, if you and I were having this conversation five years ago, and you had said, hey, I think we're going to be talking about the subject of social connection and loneliness, you're going to write a book on it, I would have said, nah, there's no way, because that was not on my agenda at all. But what happened to me, Dave, is I was really educated by people that I got to meet all around the country in living rooms and town halls and community centers. And it was interesting what they said. It was also interesting what they didn't say. Um, everywhere I went, and I, I started going around because I wanted to understand what people's experiences were before I laid out an agenda you know, for, for my time in office. And people would tell me about their struggles with substance use disorders and addiction. They would talk about being concerned about violence in the neighborhood. Um, they would talk about seeing rising rates of obesity and hearing about more friends who had heart disease and cancer. Parents uh, would, would tell me that they were really worried about their kids and how they were using technology. They had heard that there were rising you know, levels of depression and anxiety among kids, and they wondered, is technology helping my children or is it hurting them? And so all of these questions kept coming up. But what I did not expect, Dave, was that behind so many of these questions, were these threads of loneliness where people wouldn't come up to me and say, hi, I'm Dave, I'm Vivek, I'm lonely. But they would say things like this. They would say, you know, I feel I have to deal with all of these problems by myself. I feel I have no one I can lean on. I feel if I disappear tomorrow, that no one would even notice or I feel invisible. And I was hearing this from students on college campuses. I was hearing this from parents. I was hearing this from members of Congress who would whisper this behind closed doors that they too were struggling with loneliness. It seemed that whether you were a CEO or an elected leader or whether you were you know, a parent or, or a student that everyone was struggling in some way. And that, you know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of two things. One is my own experiences with loneliness as a child, uh, where as a particularly shy kid growing up, I had a hard time uh, making friends, even though I really wanted to hang out with other kids. And so I would go to school each day with this pit in my stomach, scared about just feeling lonely and, and, and feeling embarrassed. And the worst time of the day for me was lunchtime when I walk into the cafeteria and wonder if there was going to be somebody to sit next to. But it also reminded me, Dave, of the experiences I had in medicine, where in the hospital, I was shocked by how many patients I saw who would come in alone. And even when we had really difficult diagnoses to give them, or really hard decision to make about which treatment pathway we went down. And I would say to them, is there somebody you want uh, me to call so they can be here for this discussion? So many times they would say, there's nobody, there's nobody to call, I'll just have a conversation on my own. And I was reminded of those experiences, uh, Dave, when I was a Surgeon General, because it made me realize that what I was seeing as a doctor and in my own life was not unique to my experience. It was representative of a deeper well of loneliness that was affecting our country, and it turns out affecting the world more broadly. Yeah, it's so interesting because we are experiencing in real time, obviously, something that is super, super relevant to every single thing that you've written about. And there is, I'd say, a, just a connectedness in our experience of struggle right now. The willingness of someone to acknowledge their struggle or to own their experience of struggle is a different thing because, man, sometimes suffering 
feels like it has to happen alone or that if we represent what we're really going through, that we're complaining or that we can't find gratitude for not having it as bad as some other people or whatever it might end up being. Um, there, I know there's a difference between solitude and loneliness, right? Like I am in real time, someone who likes to practice in a quarantine where there are five other humans and a mini schnauzer who will not leave this place. I'm trying to fight for time for myself so that I can connect with how I feel, try and process how I feel. But choosing solitude and experiencing loneliness are two totally and completely different things. Will you just explain a little bit for someone who man wants to try and connect to fighting for some space for themselves, how there is that difference and why it's important to acknowledge that they can, they can both exist in life and that we have to get, kind of get to the bottom of why one is okay and one is maybe not as okay. Yeah, that's such a great question, Dave, because there's a distinction between loneliness, isolation, and solitude. And I think it's helpful just to quickly talk about that. So loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's a feeling that the connections that I need in my life are greater than the connections I actually have. And in that gap, we experience loneliness. Isolation is an objective term. It's more of a descriptor of the number of people that you have around you. But the truth is that you can be relatively isolated with just a couple of people and feel not lonely at all if you have strong connections with them, if you feel that you can be yourself around them. But if you can also be surrounded by hundreds of people, as the college students were that I met all across the country who said they were lonely. But if you don't feel that you have a sense of connection with them, if you don't feel known, that you, if you don't feel like you can just be yourself, you can be real with them, that can get lonely very quickly. Now, isolation is interesting because it's a state of being alone in terms of an objective descriptor. There's nobody around you per se, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, the distinction between uh, an isolated state where you're lonely and one where you're in solitude is how you actually feel about that aloneness. And in solitude, you actually feel good. It's a positive yeah. state. The reason solitude is so important is because we, while we may need different levels of it based on whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, we all need some solitude because solitude is where we process what's happening in our life. It's also where we let the noise around us settle. And that's so important in a world that's moving faster and faster and faster. It's also where we can, we can reflect a bit, um, where we can just simply be. You see, our, our world is so action-oriented. It's always about doing, but sometimes being is just as important as doing. And in fact, being can be powerful because when we allow ourselves just to be, let that noise settle and ground ourselves, and then when we, when we approach action from a place of being centered and grounded, we can often be more effective. And that's not just work. I'm talking about even conversations that you may need to have about difficult topics with your spouse or with your kids. When you're approaching that from a place of being grounded, the action you take uh, is often more effective. So in the way I think about it, being precedes doing. And solitude is an opportunity for us to focus on being. I've said a lot lately that the way you feel about yourself when you're by yourself may be one of the most important things that you can connect to. Now, understanding why you feel the way you do about yourself when you're by yourself is a whole separate conversation. For me, it's always come back to this idea of congruence, me feeling like the ideal of who I'd hope to show up as and who I know myself to have shown up as having some kind of alignment. And I'm curious in that, like, how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Is there a way that you in the work, in the book, in the listening tour, were able to 
identify some consistent things that tend to be present when people, when they're by themselves, feel lonely? I mean, you're hitting on, I think, one of the most critical points to building a connected life. And it's not entirely intuitive to most people, which is that the secret to connecting deeply with other people is to first be deeply connected with oneself. And to be connected with oneself means that you're at peace with who you are, that you recognize that you have value, that you have a sense of your self-worth. And one of the reasons I think why it can be uncomfortable to be alone for some of us is that we may not be confident about who we are. We may, we may worry that if we're alone with our thoughts, then we'll dwell upon how we're not enough and all the things that are broken about us and how we're letting people around us down. And that can be a scary prospect. The thing is because of the technology that we have readily available to us in our pockets at all times, we also never need to be alone, right? If we're worried about being alone, we just take out our device and then we check the news or we look at our inbox or we scroll through our social media feed. So again, technology at the end of the day, and this is a whole separate conversation, but it's a double-edged sword. The question is, how do we use it? Do we use it in ways that strengthen or weaken connection? But when it robs us of our time for solitude, uh, then it can actually work against us in terms of strengthening connection. You mentioned one other thing I think is really interesting. It's something that I first started to think about in my social interactions in medical school, which is the difference between who you are privately and who you are publicly with other people. So I had this thing that I used to call my turnaround test when I was in, in, in school. And I had this, I recognized like early on when I started medical school and I was with this whole group, new group of people that sometimes I would go and I would talk to people and I would be like laughing in conversation and ostensibly having a great time. But then I would turn around and I would just feel really drained as of that conversation. I was like, oh my God, what happened? I, I thought I was having a good time. But almost always when that happened, I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. I was trying to laugh at jokes that I didn't really find funny. I was trying to be more funny than I really was. I was trying to impress somebody with how smart I was or something like that. And even though maybe it seemed like it worked in that moment, it just didn't feel good to be somebody that I wasn't. Yeah. And the thing is like having to be somebody that you're not actually is a huge energy sink. It takes a lot of energy. And that's why it can feel draining. And that's why when we're with people that we can just be ourselves with, people who know us maybe because they're family or old friends, or maybe we just feel an instant connection with someone, it actually just puts us at ease. It actually reduces our overall level of tension and stress. What's interesting for me as someone who, I'm now 45, my transition from 30 to 40, a little bit of a, I think the technical term is midlife crisis. <laughs> I went from having had a great life to having a couple years where I just like, I hit a, I hit a really struggling ditch of time that I had to traverse in and out of. Grateful now for the experience of coming in and out of it, but while I was in it, one of the things that created loneliness for me was representing to the outside world that everything is great. Don't worry. It's all fine here. Everything is fantastic as I'm curating my social media feeds and putting on a smile at social events at work and doing you know, all of that. Then coming back from that public facing moment to the privacy of my own thoughts and recognizing the dissonance that, you know, hey, I'm not all, I'm not actually okay. And in representing that I'm okay, I've guaranteed two things, that I will suffer alone in this by not acknowledging honestly what I'm processing, I will suffer alone. And two, I am eliminating the possibility for me to get help because of my unwillingness to represent that I need it. Yes. And so it's, right, there's, so there's this interesting thing that for me was wrapped a little bit in kind of like the ego or vanity or 
stigma around having to own that I was in fact struggling that was actually an accelerant for feeling lonely in my struggle. What is it about struggle generally and maybe loneliness specifically that people have stigma around? Why is it that we feel shame or whatever it ends up being, the, the emotion that comes up when it comes to struggles like generally and, and loneliness specifically? And I think there is a real sense of shame that most people associate with loneliness, uh, a stigma, if you will, that surrounds loneliness. I think, and I say this not because I have just seen it, but because I've experienced it, right? When I was young and I struggled with loneliness, I never told my parents, even though I had no question that they loved me and I knew that telling them wouldn't make, me, uh, make them love me any less, but I just felt embarrassed. I felt like to say I'm lonely is like saying, hey, I'm broken or deficient in some way. I'm not likable. I'm not good enough to make friends. And, and that just, just felt horrible. And I didn't want to feel that way. Uh, and I also looked around me. I didn't see that many kids who were lonely. Everyone seemed like they were having a great time. So yeah. I also felt pretty isolated in my loneliness. But, but here's the, the reality is, and there's one other piece to this, I think, which is rele relevant, which is why we feel so stigmatized when we're lonely. Because we live in a culture that's very extrovert, right? That's not to say all of us are extroverts. But, but think about it this way. When you go to college, what's the cool thing to do on a Friday night? It's not to sit in and read a book in your dorm. It's not to have one friend over and just have like a long, deep conversation. The cool thing to do if you're in college on a Friday night is you go to a party, right? Or you go out and maybe, you know, you, you, you go to a bar and drink for the first time if you're 21. You go out with people and you have a great time and you go dancing, you go drinking, you do whatever you do. But that is not appealing to everyone, right? If you're introverted, or even if you're an extrovert and you, you get to a point where you've done that too much, you just want to stay inside, you feel like you're a loser if you do, right? And, and all of those signals together, they give people the message that in order to be acceptable, you've got to be with other people, you've got to be popular. And if you're not, then something's wrong with you. And this makes it really, really hard uh, for people when they're struggling with loneliness. I think when you, what people, and what I, part of what I included in the book, and I want everyone to understand, is that number one, is that loneliness is not evidence of being broken. It's actually a natural signal that all of our bodies experience over time. And it's a signal that, just like hunger or thirst, that our body sends us when we're missing something that we need for survival. And that's actually how important human connection is. It is, we've evolved to need each other, for our survival. But the second thing to know is that if you're lonely, you are definitely not the only one. Like we know that over 22% of adults in America, and that's a conservative estimate, struggle with loneliness. We know that 25% of adults in Australia, a similar percentage in the UK, and double digit percentages of people all over the world are struggling with, with loneliness. This is not something that we're just going through alone. We just can't see it, it's invisible. Uh, you know, to, there's to also, I think, 20, 28, 29 percent of people who are lying about not being lonely that are not included in your stats. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what's really interesting is I was, um, you know, there have been many studies, you know, in the last couple of years alone, which have actually put the numbers at far higher. And, the, and one of the, the pieces here is that given how stigmatized loneliness is, even when a stranger calls you up to administer a, sur a survey, and ask you questions about loneliness. A lot of people are like, no, I'm not lonely, I'm fine, my life is great, yeah. even though they're struggling with loneliness, because it just feels painful to admit it to ourselves. But, but there is great power in both admitting it to ourselves and being open with others. And something you just touched on, Dave, which I think is so powerful, is the importance of vulnerability, of being open and real 
with how we're feeling with ourselves and with others. Because what happens when we do that is number one, we close that gap between who we really are and who we're representing to the public. And that gap sucks a lot of energy out of our life. So we close that gap, number one. Number two, the second thing that happens is we actually empower people around us to be more real as well. Because they're like, oh, okay, at least I don't have to like sort of put my best foot forward all the time and make it seem like my life is perfect because, you know, because he's struggling too. Okay, I can be more real. And one important clarification I want to make here is being vulnerable does not mean that you're complaining all the time about what's wrong with your life, right? And why you're disappointed. That is not what it means. Being vulnerable means that you're real. You're real about the challenges you're having. You're real about the things that are bringing you joy. You're real. You're representing the full human experience. And in doing so, you give other people uh, the permission to do so as well. And that's that's really, really important. It's especially important for, I think, particularly important for guys, because I think so many of us are raised with a model of masculinity that tells us that vulnerability is not okay. Expressing your feelings is not manly. Depending on other people, this whole notion that we may be interdependent creatures is somehow not consistent with masculinity. And I think that model, one is not how guys actually operate and how we're biologically programmed, but I think it, it does a disservice to us because it pushes us and forces us to operate in a mode that's simply not how we're built. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. So if if the idea that just uh, generally that's hogwash, ridiculous, of course, we all should be just be more comfortable with being vulnerable because of the power that comes in closing that gap or the power that comes in maybe getting at the root of why you might feel lonely in the first place. Can you give some actual practical physiological byproducts of loneliness so that maybe if people can appreciate what loneliness actually causes in their life, whether it's affecting physical health or other things, maybe that can act as a catalyst for wanting to think differently about deconstructing where loneliness comes from and how to you know, eliminate it if it's possible. Yeah, so it, it's, I think, a really interesting question because for, for many people, when they think about loneliness, they think, oh, this is just a bad feeling. And it sucks to feel bad, but it's really just a bad feeling at the end of the day. But it, loneliness is so much more than that because it affects us on a biological level. It also affects our performance. And, and here's sort of how it does so. You know, thousands of years ago, when we were in tribes, when we were hunter-gatherers, we depended on each other for our survival, right? We helped protect each other from predators. We shared food so we, we, none of us starved you know, alone. We helped each other with childcare. When we were separated from our community, when we were alone, that meant that our chances of survival suddenly dropped. And we knew that. And so we automatically uh, experienced the triggering of a stress state. And we wanted to be prepared to fight a predator, to flee if we needed to. But that stress state was actually helpful because in the short term, it prepared us uh, to do what we needed to do, but it also nudged us toward finding our tribe again. The problem is when that stress state persists for a long period of time, right? And we know that chronic stress uh, can actually increase our risk for chronic inflammation, which in turn can increase our risk for heart disease, for other chronic illnesses. And, and this is so important because even though our circumstances are different than they were thousands of years ago in our hunter-gatherer days, our nervous systems are still very similar. They haven't changed all that much. And so when we're alone, like in the modern era, it still feels like we're wandering on the tundra looking for our tribe. And so if you look at some of the studies done looking at the health impact of loneliness, what you find is that loneliness is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, of depression, of anxiety, of premature death, of dementia, of sleep disturbances, and the list goes on. 
But a lot of this comes from this triggering of stress. And stress is like one of the, I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary and, you know, and I think still not fully understood forces uh, that our bodies undergo. And the more we learn about stress, the more we learn about how it affects our body and our mind in, in profound ways. Um, but there's a converse to this as well, which is that social connection, our relationships in life, are one of the greatest sources of healing, and they're one of the greatest performance enhancers that we have as well. So for people who are looking at how can they live healthier lives, who are looking for to understand how can, how can I perform better in the workplace? How can I do better and my children do better in school? How can I just show up to life with more energy, more fulfilled? It turns out that relationships are the key to do that. And think about this also, in times of crisis, when something bad happens to us or when there's a natural disaster, what do we tend to do? We seek out each other. We call yeah. a friend, we go and visit someone we love because that's our natural mode of finding safety and reducing stress in our lives. That's why there's such a powerful connection here when it comes to our health and performance. All right, so uh, after the doomsday description of all the things that stress can create and how loneliness is a provocateur of stress, let's avoid that. But here we are, it's COVID-19 time. We are forcing ourselves for good reason into isolated states and still have the need for connection. Are there tips that you would give to the people who are listening right now in the midst of this quarantine who may be experiencing some loneliness, but are also responsibly trying to keep social distancing and work from home and, and shelter in place as a part of how they're going to make it through until it feels safe to resume life as we know it? Well, absolutely. You know, th this is an extraordinarily hard time, one, because it's stressful, but two, because we can't see each other in the way we did before. But physical distancing does not necessarily have to mean that we are socially distanced from each other. And in fact, so if we do nothing different, if we just allow that physical distance to, you know, to linger and allow that to translate to us feeling more disconnected from, from other people, then what can happen is a deepening of our loneliness. And I worry that we'll incur a social recession that will be just as consequential uh, as the economic recession that may be facing us. But I don't think that has to happen. In fact, I think the opposite can happen. I think we can use COVID-19 as a catalyst for a social revival in our own lives and in society. And we can do that by using this moment to step back and take stock of our lives, to ask ourselves, where do we want relationships to fall in our priority list? And then to recognize that there are some concrete steps we can take right now to strengthen those connections. So number one, if we just make it a point to commit 10 to 15 minutes a day to connecting with someone we love, whether that's calling them on the phone or video conferencing with them or writing them just to say, hey, I'm thinking of you, I wanna know how you are. That can be a simple but powerful way to start building a lifeline to the outside world. And you'll be surprised how a little bit of effort and structure can go a long way in terms of how connected it makes us feel. The second thing we can do is to focus on the quality of time that we have with each other. One of the most insidious things that's happened to all of us over the last you know, decade or so has been that we've allowed technology to creep into our conversations, right? So I've done this and I'm not proud of it, but I'll be talking on the phone to a friend and somehow I find my hand going into my pocket, taking my phone out and scrolling through my social media feed. I'm looking at uh, you know, the news, I'm Googling a question that popped into my head and I'm convincing myself all the time that no, I'm still paying attention and I can multitask. The truth is we can't, and we're certainly not uh, able to multitask, but we can task switch. But that means when I'm paying attention to my inbox, I'm not paying attention to my friend. Simply taking 
the time that we have with our loved ones and focusing just on them, putting distraction away, can be extraordinarily powerful. And if you've ever had the experience of having somebody listen deeply to you, of having them be fully present during a conversation, that you know that five minutes of conversation like that can often be more powerful than 30 minutes of distracted conversation. And then the third thing I'd recommend has to do with service. Uh, it turns out that service is one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness that we have. And it's powerful because it short circuits these mechanisms that get triggered when we're lonely that actually deepen our loneliness. And that mechanism specifically an elevation in our threat level, a focus inward as we feel less safe, and also an erosion of our self-esteem as we come to think that we're not likable or broken because we're lonely. Mm. Service is so powerful because what it does is it shifts the focus from us to someone else in the context of a positive interaction. But it also reaffirms for us that we have value to bring to the world. And service in the age of COVID-19 does not have to be going to a soup kitchen and volunteering. It can be checking on a neighbor who might be struggling to get groceries. It could be delivering food to a friend who's trying to figure out how to telework and homeschool their kids. It could be offering to to just virtually babysit for five or 10 minutes uh, for a friend of yours who's a parent who's struggling and just to give them a moment to sit down and take a breath and breathe. So looking for ways to serve can be powerful, but keeping in mind that all of these things, that put it, keeping time aside, focusing on quality of time, looking for ways to serve, that those ads have to be done with some eye toward preserving moments of solitude for ourselves, Because that solitude, especially now, during moments of stress where everything is turning around us and when there's uncertainty about when this will end, that those moments of solitude can be like our anchors. That can be when we allow ourselves to really recenter. And again, it doesn't have to be going on a seven-day meditation retreat. Uh, it can just be the few minutes that we take to sit outside, to feel the wind against our face, to take a walk in nature, to remember three things that we're grateful for, to meditate or pray or read a good book. That's what's why solitude is so powerful in a moment like this. And if we can take these simple steps, if we can build them into our lives, which we can do thanks to technology in this moment of quarantine, then I believe that we can actually strengthen our connections and that we can come out of this pandemic, hopefully more connected, hopefully prioritizing people more, and ultimately be more deeply fulfilled than before the pandemic even began. That is a mic drop right there. You are preaching Good doctor. I hope everyone is listening to the words that were just coming out of this man's mouth. We are choosing, each of us individually, if the byproduct of this quarantine is a social recession or a social revival. And for some people, it will 100% be the former. And for you, should you choose it, if you follow some of the words that were just gifted to you, it can be a revival. And I truly believe that, man, there are gifts in this slowdown, in this reset, in this time that we are getting to inventory how we interact with people, how we do it in a quality way, how we, yep, absolutely serve and focus on service. Man, I love those three things. And how we carve out time for ourselves. I would pay $1 trillion right now of stimulus money for a seven-day retreat from the people who live in this house, but I don't have a trillion dollars or the ability to leave this place. So, uh, man, I appreciate that. All right, listen, everyone, this man has just gifted you with so much wisdom. He has a new book that is out called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Go buy this book. I mean, geez, what are you even doing on this planet if you don't want to support this man and his work in these times? 
Dr. Murthy, thank you for being here today. I so, so appreciate that this was a really fun conversation. I will uh, be checking in to make sure that you're not lonely on social media or everywhere else. Where can people follow you to do the same? Well, thanks so much, Dave. I really enjoy this conversation. I mean, I, I'm on certainly the usual social media channels on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. I also have realized that in the in the wake of the book coming out, there have been so many inspiring stories that people have shared, and we want to build a community of people that we can share these stories with. And so if you just go to, to my website, which is my first and last name.com, vivekmurthy.com, uh, and sign up for our list, we'd be happy to share the beautiful stories that the community is, is, is bringing to us uh, to bring hopefully a little bit more joy and connection to all of our lives. Excellent. We will put that link in the show notes. It's V-I-V-E-K-M-U-R-T-H-Y.com. Hit the link, share your story, buy the book. Literally, if he asks you to do anything, Dave, anything, yes, anything. <laughs> he is a former 36-year-old Surgeon General of these United States of America people. You listen to what this man says and you do it immediately. Doctor, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Thanks so much, Dave. So nice to talk to you.